three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of Armchair Philosophers. Shit, do any of us speak Sindarin? I feel like we should have had the the intro put in like Sindarin for this. Well, <laughs> for those of you at home, the topic of this episode with I'm your host, Andrew Ryan, by the way, uh, is about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings in general. Yeah. And this is a special episode. This is a Fantasy Worlds episode, which is a mini series you're going to see pop up every now and then on this podcast. And so I will be making a playlist of just these episodes if you're looking for just these episodes. But basically, the idea is we're going to go through a Fantasy World and talk about as much as we can um, and go all over the place with it. And uh, special I episode the most... because we're going to take our human faces off and reveal the nerds underneath. Nerd stuff, nerd stuff rules. Yeah, I picked Lord of the Rings it, as the first fantasy world, because in my mind, it's the one most people are probably familiar with, and it's probably one of the most impactful, and we'll get to why. And um, this is a spoiler discussion, um, so spoilers are going to be flying left and right, so if you don't want to be spoiled about anything revolving around Tolkien's work, or Lord of the Rings, or anything like that, it's just including the movies, stop now. Alright, so... How we're going to talk about this, how do we even begin? Well, first, we're going to begin with um, as written, like how they in the order they were written, not in the order they actually are Okay. Um, in universe. And we're going to because I think that's actually more important, given what we learn about this universe and about everything around it. So we're going to start with the hole in the ground then. Yeah. So we're going to start first with um, The Hobbit. So The Hobbit is the first book that our, uh, Tolkien wrote. And um, J.R.R. Tolkien, for those at home. And or, yeah, certainly the first Middle-earth book he published, I think. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. He actually only published four himself. Hmm. Um, well, through that he was alive to write. And he, just so people are have some context, he was born in, I think, 1892. And he died sometime in the 70s. Um, and The Hobbit, uh, for me, was a, when I read it, I immediately thought of D&D. Um, and when I want, we'll get to the movies, but like in The Hobbit book, it's very much framed as this hobbit, obviously, who is this smaller humanoid creature um, with large feet and very hairy. And he lives a very simple life, very much similar to like what you would imagine a farmer's life to be like. Um, very calm, very safe, very, very inward. A very rich farmer. Yeah. And this is our first fantasy creature. We're instantly thrown in and we're not given a human perspective. We're given it. It is human. And um, it's very much told from a human perspective. It's human, but the character is not human. Yes. <laughs> you don't feel thrown off like you don't feel yeah. like it's super alien or anything and this is kind of like if you've ever heard of someone say right. halfling or hobbit this is where most of that um definition comes from this kind of interpretation yeah free and nerds out there and so bilbo is the main character that we're introduced to and his hobbit hole and his life in the shire and it's peaceful and you know he like hobbits have these very uh basic traits where they're like somewhat cowardly but they like to live uh very stagnant lives where all they do is eat drink sleep go out collect things like they, they hoard stuff in their little hobbit holes and they like living comfortable lives 
all of which they do very well. Yeah. And, and, token, and we take pleasure in that. We, we, we yeah. like that as readers, yeah. And at this point in time, Tolkien doesn't have a universe in mind, by the way. Um, he's writing this book as a one-off, uh, at least from what I've read. Like the original version of it, yes. Yeah. Though keep in mind that a lot of later reprintings changed significant elements of it to make it. Oh, fit in. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the, because the, it just doesn't make sense yeah. <laughs> without the whole, those. <laughs> the whole riddles in the dark scene was completely mm. rewritten a couple of times. So I want to first touch on the writing in the book itself. Um, Tolkien's writing is very good, but I want to touch on how like interesting it is that Tolkien switches between songs, poems, mm. and an entire new language, which is Elvin at points that he's developed in his own that time. His, that was his jam, right? He was a professor yeah. of linguistics. Lang well, yeah, language. I don't absolutely. think it was linguistics in particular. I forget what exactly it was a professor of, but his whole passion in life was uh, ancient European linguistics in particular. Mm -hmm. So he when, he, when he got into his professor of Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know what that means. But... I think I think it that, just that's speaks the to... language of Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Like if the I... he's he's playing with different mediums within a medium, which I just think mm -hmm. is so cool, and uh, and it just brings it so much more to life. Um, there's so many authors now who try to do that, even just a little bit, um, and it and it just more sense of the world. Yeah, him, you know, was... yeah. For him, like, I, think I, get, I get the poems that the hobbits write. I get the songs they sing. Like I get, I feel like I'm experiencing more of their culture than i'm actually i actually am i think that's a reflection for him of the fact that that is how you do a lot of linguistics like if you're studying a language that has been functionally dead and extinct for a couple hundred years a lot of the things that you will have as examples of it are songs and poems just as much as anything else yeah and it's how you get to know what that language was like and what it talked what its people talked about yeah when i think of tolkien's world at this point i think of like ireland or britain's fields like big mm -hmm. grassy plains and hills and deep forests and great mountains like very much an untamed wilderness to explore with like comforts like every town is like an, a nice place to be almost you know um i think tolkien uh you guys know how how a lot of his stuff is created like he created the languages first and then everything else came later we'll probably talk yeah. about that a little bit later okay but i think that tolkien doesn't like to cheat in his writing and when i say cheat i mean if he's saying that people are singing a song he has to list out what the song is yeah right? he has to he has to see all the lyrics if he says like something you know if he says there's this mystical poem that has to be read well then here's the mystical poem right he's not someone who can just say they sang a song and it was great like he can't do that right it's, and I think that's partially because of you know where he was coming from, but also partially because he understood, and it's part of what makes his works work as well as they do, is that he mm -hmm. understood that those things give a sense of wonder that mm -hmm. no prose description will do on its own. Yeah, like, like yeah, I totally agree. It's amazing to me that he wrote a language and it's as well created as it actually is when mm -hmm. you dive into the elven, elven language that he built. And it's interesting because it's one of those ones where, like any living language, it evolved over time, and he sort of retroactively ascribed that to the various in-world time periods and had the languages evolve over time and move yeah. forward, backward, apart from each yeah, other. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> it, it, it's it's mind-blowing. Like, I only know of two fantasy languages ever created, and it's this one, Elvish, and the other one, Klingon. And it's like, well, yeah. it's like this one in particular, like... He definitely 
did his legwork which, uh, like, which, on all the research which, and everything. Which Elvish are we talking about? <laughs> uh, Tolkien's like original Elvish. Uh, there, that is, that does, which, do you, do you have any idea how little that narrows it down? <laughs> right. Well, I, I don't know how, what that means, but I, I'm just talking in terms of that he created language. And that so essentially, and I'm, I'm going to like nerd out here for a couple of seconds and then we'll come back. Uh, the most, one of the most common ones that people will note as the, the token elf language is Sindarin, which is a subdialect of Kenya, which is, there's, there's this whole thing of, because there was the whole nonsense that I'm sure we'll get into with the elves breaking up into different sections and finding each other mm -hmm. again and going back and forth, their languages evolved with them. And even just among the elves who otherwise seemingly have, especially in the movies, are presented with a very uniform aesthetic, there are very different languages for their different histories and the different sections of them that came from different places and the ones who stayed in the world and the ones who went back to the west and it's a, it's a giant complicated mess and if you think if if you think that it's what's why i wouldn't put klingon on the same tier is right this is this is miles beyond that well yeah this i would agree i was just saying i only know of two and i, I find this one extremely impressive yeah um also interestingly enough How'd you guys take to it being verbalized on screen? Like, what'd you the language? Actually, yeah, because that matters. Because up until that point, it was written, right? It was and... written with pronunciation guides, though. Oh, and okay. arguably the way they pronounced a couple of things was a little bit incorrect. But for the most part, they did a like the people who made the original movie were doing a pretty solid job of it. Yeah, um, like they, they 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 wanted to do it right, and they had <laughs> the tools to do so. Yeah, it was, and, it was uh, Lord of the Ring nerds that were making the movies, so they were yeah. pretty. They they knew what they were trying to produce, so they were able to produce that, as opposed to like a big bad producer being like, "We have to cut corners here," you know. There's there were definitely a couple much. of there definitely definitely a couple of choices that arguably worked or didn't. Like the fact that uh, in the movies, all we're of the dwarves have yeah yeah uh, all of the dwarves have Scottish accents, right? Right. That's like the choice that was made for them. Right. But the languages that they use in the books and in all the appendices are much more heavily based on almost like Middle Eastern languages. Mm. They're not they're and and part of that tracks with their whole backstory. Like they're they're very much not so it's sort of funny when you have someone with a, a very heavy Scottish accent pronouncing words that are like do not contain right. the syllables you would expect from someone. That's still fun though. I like that. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Let's bring it back to The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. yep. So, like, all of that, all the stuff in Lord of the Rings at this point doesn't exist. Yeah. And so we know, like, immediately we're thrown in and a wizard comes to uh, Bilbo and goes, do you want to go on an adventure? And he goes, no. Like, yes. go away, wizard. Because wizard, we're instantly told wizards are trouble from a Hobbit's perspective. They are neither late nor are they early. They arrive exactly when they and this is where we start seeing what I like to call the molds for fantasy tropes taking shape. Um, Gandalf becomes the mold for all, almost all wizards going forward. Um, Bilbo is the mold for almost all hobbits going forward. Gandalf is one of two wizards who's ever shown in Lord of the Rings that tracks. Yeah, at this point, the wizards aren't more than wizards as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, at least in the original writing. No, it's it's left very vague as to what exactly they are, so there's yeah. room for expansion. It, 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 there's a lot of stuff in The Hobbit that doesn't co actively contradict things that come up later, just because 
The Hobbit is told in a more story-oriented sort of freeform style that leaves room for things to be filled in later in the longer Lord of the Rings books. People describe, when they describe The Hobbit, as almost like a fairy tale type of storytelling. Yes. Um, And the later books are like where it starts becoming more of a fantasy, more of the impact that it actually had on the world. Yeah. The 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 Hobbit is more popular. folktale. Yeah, it's more folktale that could be told around a campfire. Yeah. Whereas Lord of the Rings are like, I don't want to say history textbook because they're not. They've got some very nice prose in them if you can find it, but um, they're definitely not the same voice. Impressive that Tolkien was able to create what I would consider a modern folklore. Hmm. Well, that was his mm-hmm. objective, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but still impressive because folklore is almost rooted in culture and history. And he does that by taking inspiration from existing cultures and histories in yes. the Hobbit, which we then get introduced to dwarves because of, of course, the wizard doesn't care what Bilbo thinks Gandalf. He writes a little thing on his door and then a bunch of dwarves show up and it's like, we're introduced to the adventuring party where it's like a bunch of dwarves, uh, the, the Hobbit and Gandalf. And all the dwarves have various names, and all, the one that really matters is the the king under the mountain. And they're like, "We're gonna go reclaim this mountain." And this is where we get the molding of what dwarves are, which is they're all hairy, they're all slightly taller than hobbits, but still short. They're all burly, muscly, disgusting, rude, but also honorable. Like you know, like like, like You're disgusting and rude by <laughs> disgusting and rude by civilized hobbit standards, of course. Yeah, yeah, but they're honorable. They like. As we go through the novel, dwarves have their upsides, but they like at first Bilbo's like absolutely repulsed by them. Yep. And like as any upstanding English gentleman would be. I find it interesting that beyond humans and elves, that almost all of these like creatures he creates, they don't really well, even elves, they don't really grow beyond what he defines the creatures as. Mm, explain. Like a dwarf Almost a dwarf across Tolkien's novels, you get them all together, and a lot of the time it feels like it's the same person staying, standing in the room. When you have like five dwarves in the room, it's like there's minor differences, but a dwarf's a dwarf. Well, yeah, but that's because what a dwarf is, is. Yeah, they're simpler. The horrible, right? It's pardon the horrible pun, it's set in stone. Yeah. It's it that is who they are fundamentally, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to humans and elves and hobbits. Yeah, I just find when I'm looking at humans, they're the only ones that like change, and because obviously he knows humans, and humans are all different. But like when it comes to like elves, we can like blanket label all elves a certain way, or all dwarves a certain way. I think it's I think it's interesting because the elves actually do change significantly over time. They change over a time scale that isn't relevant to the books. Right. I think that's something where you see it in humans because humans died after a fairly small period of time. Uh, and even for even for hobbits, hobbits change, but they change a little. I, I feel like their their broad changes in, in a hobbit's life are a little compressed towards the middle compared to a human. Like they don't really consider you to be an adult until like your thirty fifth birthday or something, right? Yeah, they're they're all ribbing on Pippin for still being a kid, but he's honestly not that young. <laughs> yeah, and we also I, like from this adventure they set out, and instantly we're introduced to elves and orcs, and elves. We get the hatred of elves and dwarves, right? We don't the, get orcs right off the bat. Well, we, we get mention of them, right? Like we actually meet trolls first. 
Yeah, you're right. And they make trolls, which is something I want to talk about because, like, a lot of literary literary scholars note that like orcs opposite of elf, and trolls opposite of ents. Like, they talk about how the evil races are just good races but opposite. And I don't know what to take from that. Like, I'm not a literary well, scholar. There myself, is but... there are direct quotes from Lord of the Rings, uh, and also to some degree from the Silmarillion. I think it's Treebeard when he's talking about orcs who talks about how uh, orcs were made in mockery of elves by by their creed. Yeah. And some people have said a similar thing, I think, about uh, trolls and ants. So I, I can't remember if he disputes that or not in his statement. And I know. Oh, sorry. I uh, at least the part about orcs and elves definitely is like confirmed in the Silmarillion to some degree. Yeah. Oh. And I know um, elves and dwarves were made by the gods in to be to be opposite strengths, right? To be opposite well, we'll, one we'll another. Get to that when no, we talk that's, about okay. Silmarillion, but that's yeah. that's actually different. But yeah, they they have a, a long-standing reason for rivalry, certainly. But it's less to do with opposites and more to do mm-hmm. with uh. There's a little bit of debate about who was the first. Well, it's because dwarves, dwarves. This is where you might hear a lot of things you're familiar with in another story that's not Lord of the Rings come up. Yeah. because dwarves are hold grudges in Tolkien's yeah. work. They hold grudges for a long period of time and they don't forgive easily. And they're stubborn. And elves are very prideful and very much don't like showing weakness in themselves and like presenting themselves as perfection. And that, that that's why they have this long-standing hatred because some random thing in the past, neither of them can, can admit wrong in that scenario. It's, it's not even having done wrong because it's neither of them's fault. Right. It's it's 100% a pride thing because and it's it's about um because like you said the elves are the ones that tend to be a little more prideful. The dwarves definitely have a bit, but in in fairness, they're in in the context of this debate, the dwarves are not wrong. Uh there was at the beginning of the world, uh there were some plans that to make stuff. Essentially, I'm skipping over it cuz I'm sure we'll come back later. And uh the important point was that the elves are going to be the first things to be made. They were going to be the, the firstborn children of the gods, as it were. And then everything was set up, and they were ready to do that. And before they could do that, one of the gods was getting a little bored, essentially. And he snuck out, and he made dwarves. And the other gods were like, hey, you can't, you can't do... The, 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 put those back! So they put them all to sleep for a while, so that the elves could come out and be the first, and then the dwarves could come back. So... The elves resent this because they were designed to be the first, the firstborn, etc. And on a technical level, they weren't. And the dwarves, <laughs> the dwarves, partially because, and this is where you can talk about grudges and maybe a, a bit of a grim sense of humor, uh, <laughs> realized that this really annoys the elves. Uh, it, later on, there there was much intervening history between these two. At this point, before that exists, right? He hasn't written that yet. At this point, yeah. And even there, we still can get these tropes. Uh, solidified as if um, the dwarves and the elves don't like each other and it's for some dumb reason that if they came to the table and acted like humans they would get over it but they're not it's interesting because in the hobbit they don't actually get along as badly or at least they don't they don't at rivendell the the i feel like the whole trope of the grudge between elves and dwarves comes from later on when you hit uh the the woods and and, yeah 
the Wood Elves, who do have a grudge at the Dwarves and vice versa, for very legitimate, like, recent grievances, like, within right. the last hundred, couple hundred years. So I feel like that got expanded out to something that a lot of people consider to be like, oh, you know, they all they all hate each other kind of thing. But it's it's actually very localized in The Hobbit. And well, yes, yeah, in Rivendell, it's more of a Dwarves, like, being brotherly, like, ranxious uproars and songs like clanging mugs together like being that type of life and elves like the pristine sitting down being cleanly it's a it's an uncomfortable but that's not but that's not true because the elves also or some of the elves also enjoy this the noldori especially where um if you look at some of some of the works where he hadn't like they got published later but he was still like working at the terminology there's a whole section of the elves uh who eventually go on to be what you'd think of as sort of the high elves who had their whole thing was like metalworking and singing and like all of Fanor's folk, they were, they were in the older ones referred to as gnomes because they tended to live underground. They were expert metal workers. They did a lot of things very similar to how the dwarves did it. And that's something that you have a sort of in world historical influence on the elves at Rivendell uh, as well as others, but not so on the elves from the, from Mirkwood. Yeah. But there's, there was like, the elves are are very much varied, and the whole idea of I mean, there you you talked about the dwarves love singing and having a having a whole party, and that's that's how the elves greet them when they show up at Rivendell. They're they they are greeted with song. It's uh it's not really a a, a clash of cultures at that first meeting. Well, they depict that it, it they depict it that way in the in the movie. Yeah, but that's um, because the Hobbit movies are bad. <laughs> but yeah, it was just something from I an noticed. objective standpoint, they were bad. Um, what do you think of dwarves, Colin and elves? I know you're a big elf fan. I'm a huge elf fan. I think elves are superior in all ways, and I love them. Dwarves piss me off a lot, but I sometimes can get behind them. Sometimes, um, I I just really like how like I just I just really like how Tolkien created them to be so like they're so they're they're they have a human base, right? Like they they still have you know two arms, two legs, bipedal, and, and all that. Like, they're not completely alien, right? So they're very naturally familiar to us, right? Which is which is great. But then he just, like, changed the body type a bit. He, like, made, makes one a little, like, thinner and taller and, and, you know, whatever. And then the other one's stockier or whatever. And then, like, suddenly we get behind this. And I just, I love how much we can relate to dwarves and elves. And we just know exactly what he's trying to do, right? Yeah. I just, I love that so much. I think it's so cool. I notice like elves often appear as if they're just better humans. Mm-hmm. Like they're just better at everything than humans are. They're more they're almost divine in a way. Like they're always glowing in his novels or they're like they're shown as like perfectionists and mm-hmm. like even their metalworking is in like everything is inferior to what an elf can do. And like then he shows doors and he's like, but they're pretty good at things too. And but they're greedy. Uh, but they're also loyal, and it's like these kind of like very basic things that we can recognize in ourselves as humans. We're able to latch on to these fantasy races and go, okay, they're just an exaggeration of those tropes, those things. Right. I think at that point after they leave Rivendell is when we get the first orc to appear, right? I don't remember when they actually first run into them. I think it's af. I think it's later. I think there's been discussion of works because at the in the first scene back in the house when they pull out the treasure map. Yeah, there's a discussion of them. how, yeah, how it wound like the whole history of it and how it wound up in in Thorin's hands and how Gandalf wound up within the whole nine yards of how it got here and that involves a lot of histories. 
just to clarify, at this point, the the entire story is Bilbo is sold as this thief to this group of dwarves, including the king under the mountain. I can't remember the name. The rightful uh, heir. Sorry. Yeah, the rightful heir. And they're going to go reclaim a mountain. And they're like, there was a dragon there once, but we think he's gone now because ravens are returning to the mountain. And this whole quest is like very simply, let's go to the mountains. Let's get this stone specifically that makes me king and also retake the hold. Stone wasn't as big of a thing in the book. That's something they brought out in the movie. Okay. It's, it was definitely um, like the, the, the crown jewel, as it were, but it wasn't, it didn't pick up significance until they actually run into it. Right. Um, I think a dragon is something that even when I was reading The Hobbit, I immediately knew what that was. I don't know if that, I don't know if I could argue that Tolkien made dragons what they are, right? I Like, no. you would have a tough time arguing that. Yeah. Yeah, because so, King Arthur, you, yeah. like, some of this is coming from Arthurian legend now, right? Yeah, I think so at this a lot of point, the... dragons are more well-established than everything else he's presenting. Yeah, I think they are. I think a lot of the personality that is commonly ascribed to dragons in a lot of modern works come from the way that Smog is interacted with in it. Yeah. Like, there were I not as say, many... Uh... There were a lot of books that had... There were many, many books that had dragons in them before The Hobbit, by all means. A lot of them presented them as very straightforward characters, or certainly not as charismatic as Smog could come off as mm-hmm. in his conversations. And I yeah. think that's something that definitely had an influence. Yeah. And uh, so when orcs are introduced, because I want to touch on them, because these are my favorite uh, fantasy creature, are orcs. They're depicted as brutish, uncaring, uh, sadists. Like, they they only want one thing, and it's death and destruction. And they're your favorite. Not in Lord of the Rings, actually. Common misconception because of the movies, but their their defining trait in the books is more cowardice. Yeah. Uh, than than desire for destruction. There's a lot of things in the books that aren't really as reflected in a lot of other media that talks about them. Where the focus for most orcs is they just they just want to go home. They've they've been they have very much been forced into doing what they're doing. They are deathly afraid of the of of whoever is in charge right now. And for most of them, their their core desire is just to go back and try and snag some land and live out as much time as they can peacefully. Yeah, but, uh, and this is one of the criticisms of Tolkien, he presents them as unequivocally bad. Like, there's no, it's black and white morality when it comes to orcs. I'm I'm genuinely not sure that's true. Well, Um, it's like most, well, most people read it come away that way. In the movies, yes. And when we're talking about I don't know. I think there's there's more nuance to it than that if you look for the nuance. But I think that a lot of people had their minds made up about how things should and how it should play on screen for instance. I mean, um, if you get nuance, that's great. I just I just know the majority opinion walking away from the books in all of them is that like Tolkien presents a race as unequivocally bad and maybe he didn't intend to do that, but he did do that. And like, I I get it. You need an enemy. You need a, a bad guy because he does have bad guys that are like these. They could be good in a different situation. He does do that, mm-hmm. but the orcs specifically are always bad. So they're um, they're always on the side of evil for sure. Yeah, but because I think the way he was he trying to do something else with them, and we'll get to what that is in Lord of the Rings because I think it's more prevalent there. 
but he was trying to do something with the orcs and less of that. Like, he's like, I need them all to be bad because they represent a bad thing that I don't like. So I, I'd argue that that comes up most actually right here in The Hobbit as we're getting into the Misty Mountain. Because an important point to note is that uh, in Tokens' work, goblins and orcs are functionally interchangeable words. Like, they're yep. not completely interchangeable. Orcs are bigger, generally speaking. It's the word used for larger varieties of goblins. But the two are very similar. So when we run into goblins in the Misty Mountain, here's another, you know, cinema sins ding for fucking Hobbit movies. But... Uh, the things they run into there are absolutely orcs. And they're the opening description you get for them as we first actually run into them is that they are very into machinery and building complicated devices and weapons. Yeah. And there's even a, like a, because this was written back at a time when he wasn't entirely certain how Middle Earth tied into our modern times, there's even like a throwaway line about how, who knows, maybe things that are basically orcs are responsible for the weapons of mass destruction of today mm. kind of and that's that is an agenda i think he absolutely he was very against industrialization against like the source yeah, and i want to i want to get to that a bit to. more later because i i think with the context of lord of the rings it, it definitely comes through oh yeah there's a sure. lot of things that come through but we'll but it we'll is something about that was, what we can get from tolkien from that it's something that was introduced as early as that scene like yeah it's, you, it's you get a bit of it here for sure i think a lot of the world at this point is left to mystery, right? Like yes. there's a witch king in the north that Gandalf has to conveniently leave to confront. And we never see that in the book. Uh, because Tolkien needs a reason for Gandalf not to be there in certain situations. And he literally wrote it because Gandalf no, could, in his mind, solve the situation, right? And he's always like, Gandalf yeah. has to leave. <laughs> it wasn't the witch king, it was the necromancer. Right. But tied back yeah. into how, how he got the key in the first place. Um, but Gandalf keeps having to leave for various reasons, and it's because Tolkien literally didn't know how these characters would overcome obstacles if Gandalf was there. Yeah, which you'll actually notice a lot in even in Lord of the Rings that happens. Yep. But the, he gives uh, Gandalf more of a character arc and more of a reason for why he's doing things in Lord of the Rings. This time he's like, I just don't know what to do with them. He's a wizard. He solves every situation, and it's also very much a. It's interesting that we're talking about how much of the world is an unknown because this book takes place as they walk essentially across the northern boundary of most of the world maps that Lord of the Rings uses. Yeah. Like, like it's it's literally avoiding the core of the world that will have other stuff in it in the future. Yeah, and it not to discount Tolkien does a great job of painting this little adventure and what the world looks like in yeah. this little slice for us in this book. Yeah. Um I, I find it interesting that wizard is explicitly different even at this point than a human. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like we, it's very clear that Gandalf isn't human. He's a wizard. <laughs> so I always so, wonder so clarify, if he always had this mind on what wizards oh, he were. Did. So to clarify, we talk about, you know, how a lot of things weren't solidified yet by that point, but he'd been writing in his own margin notes uh, stories and bits and details of this world that he was working on for like years and years and years before he touched the Hobbit. It's the first thing that he published. It was by no means the first work that he produced. Right. Like he had all he had in modern nerd speak like fifteen years of campaign notes when he started working on this book. Well, this is how it reads. Like this whole book reads like a D and D first adventure campaign. Well, I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a 
an inverse causation there. I think a lot of yeah. the, the adventure campaigns explicitly try to replicate the Hobbit. Oh yeah, yeah. Like when Bilbo uh, confronts Smeagol, it's just this obstacle he has to get through to get this magic ring. Yeah. And this magic ring is just a magic ring at this point mm-hmm. that turns you invisible, and that's all it is. And yep. he uses this tool to get past the dragon. But the dragon catches him. Like it, he fails his stealth check, I guess, for the yeah. indeed. And like uh, as we go through, like eventually the humans get involved and they want their piece of the mountain. In the, at least in the movie, I can't remember if that's in the book or not. It still happens in the book, though. It's a little. It has less priority because the book is very much Bilbo's story, whereas the movie yeah. tried to put Thor and and a couple of the other characters more to the front. Yeah, like. The whole climactic battle that, of course, they had to have in detail in the movies because it's a movie and we can't have nice things. Bilbo is knocked unconscious for at the beginning of in the book. He spends the entire time out cold, and we don't hear about any of it. We have we we as point of view follow him as he wakes up. He's woken up by Gandalf at the end and has to go deal with the aftermath of it. Yeah, that's that's also a, like a modern storytelling versus an older style storytelling. So, mm-hmm. like how how modern storytelling. You can't like if if something is happening, then you have to um, you have to experience it. You can't just kind of say, "Oh, it happened," and then leave. I'm not yeah. certain that's entirely true. I mean, like it's definitely a more common in modern storytelling. But if you look at say, uh, it's frowned upon. Well, there's definitely examples of people using it well. Like, well, of course there are. No, no, but this is just this is just contemporary storytelling. Like, yeah. right? It's it's frowned upon if you mention something but do nothing with it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I get that. Like, I, I think the thing is that it isn't his story, though. Like, I, I think it's less of my 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 take on it is that it has more to do with the fact that Bilbo doesn't play a role in that part of the story. It's not relevant to his character arc. It's not relevant to the through line of the story of his experiences. And in the book, that's very much what we're focusing on. Yeah. Right. So, so in in more contemporary storytelling then it would be then don't have that thing like don't have that battle if he's not playing a crucial part in it if the character is that important right unless it's a more plot-based story yeah. right which honestly i think is i i would say that's bad advice but fair i, I get weird no no this like, is yeah it's this is just like it, as, as a storyteller like if you say yeah, yeah. like it's Chekhov's gun but on a plot level right yeah yeah um so the book uh basically culminates in the battle of the five armies uh, because Thorin gets corrupted by the greed of the mountain. Um, yes, cool. They call it Dragon's Greed. Less Again, less of a thing in the book. In the books, it's more just like, they got here, it's what they were looking for, and they're going to try and set to work rebuilding, and then everyone else shows up wanting a piece of the pie. Right. And so the Battle of Five Armies is orcs, dwarves, elves, and humans all fighting, and then like eagles and a bear guy, shapeshifter <laughs> that they met along the way. And it's like, it's almost everything I mentioned, people instantly recognize, except maybe the shapeshifter. That's like the one fantasy race that they introduced that didn't really stick with people. I think maybe that's because like, it wasn't a, I think that's because it wasn't a race, right? It's, right. He's, he's an individual who did this. And I think the idea of individuals with like... Well, he was a race, right? Like the orcs killed all his family, right? All, no, I mean they killed his family, but I don't think the I don't think the turning shapeshifting into a bear thing was like a genetic. I don't think there was like a family line of people who did that. I think that's something that he has the ability to do, which is never entirely explained how or why. Partially because this was an earlier foray into it, where sometimes there's just weird stuff, and 
I got the impression that this is much more... When he talked about his family, most of the time it seems like he's talking about the animals around him. Like, he's just this lonely guy who lives out there and and interacts with the animal and does his own thing and is a weird and funky thing for them to encounter. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just... I always found it interesting that, like, out of all the, the various, like, foundations we have in this book for what modern fantasy became, um, that this is not one of them. This is not something that carries on. Uh, I'd, I'd argue that the the role of the benevolent benevolent nature oriented shapeshifter shows up in a lot of well. You could maybe argue that druids being associated with bears so heavily is a result of this. Yeah, but I don't know or, beyond that. Yeah, actually, I'd argue that the it's less of a you know fantasy race that shows up in your D and D handbook and more of the fantasy class. Um, hmm. Leads very much to the druid in a lot of ways. So, that, as far Tolkien, as I can, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, Tolkien makes this book, right? And it yeah. does really, really well. And yeah. so the publishers are like, can you make more? And Tolkien... I thought it was a sleeper hit. It does well enough the publishers ask him to make more. And he agrees. I don't think he originally intended it to be more. Uh, but he agrees. And this is where we get his magnum opus, I guess I would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, is the series we all know as Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he starts establishing more of a history of the world. Um, the ring that Bilbo found becomes a ring of Sauron. All of this is now taking place in an age known as the third age, which implies there were ages before that. Um, and there were, there's now a theme once again of a Hobbit being called to action to adventure, but this time it's a great responsibility. And a lot of people, including me noticed that the themes of this great, this farmer being called to a great responsibility to kind of save the world echoes with World War One and World War Two. Uh, let's not call him a farmer. He's absolutely an aristocrat. Yeah, but it still echoes with like someone who has a comfortable life being called into action yes. and being taken out of a comfortable life to do something important. Absolutely very, agreed, hundred percent. Very World War One, World War Two reminiscent of like what people actually went through during that time period being called into action and. Like, we start getting the characters we all know and love, like Legolas, Gimli, uh, Bilbo, uh, Sam. I'm sorry, Bilbo comes back, but like Frodo, Sam. Uh, Mary and Pippin. Yeah, all those. You've seen the movies probably at home. If you haven't, you should watch them because they're really good. And the books themselves are good, too. Yeah. Uh, and we established that Sauron's this great evil that was defeated uh, at the end of the Second Age. And he had this ring that enslaved every other race the one ring and that ring Bilbo has in his pocket that Frodo now has is that ring <laughs> and Gandalf's like you gotta take it to Mount Doom and destroy it like mm, there's no other option no no you gotta take it to you gotta take it to my friend the elf who's gonna decide what we do with it oh right yeah because but, that's, that's the interesting thing is that for the first solid portion of the first book there isn't actually a direct like call to this whole noble lead for the hobbits it's very much something they take upon themselves yeah, they're the ones who volunteer for it when everyone else seems to be arguing about what needs to be done. Yeah, at this point, the hobbits finally break the kind of molding he set in the first one, where it's like, well, yeah, they're they may be cowardly and calm, but not all of them, not all the time. Like Certainly Frodo and Sam and Pippin and Merry yeah. prove prove that wrong. Yep, There's, and, and something that yeah. is argue like retroactively retroactively in universe justified by the fact that. I think everyone except Sam is at least partially descended from 
the one hobbit who was like the crazy hobbit who you know went oh, yeah. swimming and played golf and stuff because of yeah. course see they are all a bunch of aristocrats except for sam yeah and like it establishes that human and and almost everybody who gets in contact with this ring gets corrupted and how much of a task it is to carry it even to just the elves hmm. and especially like especially to the elves yeah and it even touches on and hints at like Gollum was a victim of this and that Bilbo was becoming a victim of this at this point whereas Gollum was what's this this creature that shoot riddles at you for a game now he's like an actual character with like backstory and reasons have you ever seen uh the illustrations from early publishings of the hobbit of of Gollum because in the in the hobbit there's actually very little physical description of it. Yeah. so a lot of early versions of it were like maybe he looks like a platypus you know and they just they just went with that there's some wonk like drawings of him that are actually really need to go back and look at because it's something that for all that some people will complain about overly detailed descriptions of stuff that doesn't matter through Lord of the Rings. It's funny that the Hobbit did the opposite, and you got some some weird ideas about what exactly Gollum was. Like I've never seen something that looks more like a humanoid emu than this one image of rowing his little boat across the cavern underwater. We're gonna talk about all the all three books at the same time. By the way, like yeah. they do occur separately, but there's just in my mind, there's just no way to separate them. Well, yeah. and and can I can I clarify? Was it was it written as one book intentionally, or was it referred to as one book? Because I know that that's one thing that happened, right? It was it was later sliced. Is that? Oh wait, no, 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 no. It's like nine books. Each of the each of the three physical okay. books is currently sold and is divided into multiple books internally. Yeah, it's and then it's, now it's you, distributed as three. Yeah, yeah, mind you, those are that's how he. I believe he had input in them being published that way, like as the three books mm-hmm. and it's very much using the term book internally sort of like section but oh so okay so kind of like the bible like the bible's a book yeah. but really it's a library yeah exactly you say that because tolkien like, was christian well yeah, yeah and this heavy heavy christian influence catholic influence uh, yeah interestingly yeah. more more and less so over time it because he, he had periods of being much less especially when he was putting up with uh c.s lewis on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. uh well, definitely had his less christian periods but it's interesting because he had characters who he arguably wrote as like explicit subversions of Christian character archetypes who in some of his later musings on it would like revert them to give them Christian justifications, uh, especially, well, especially Gladriel. Gladriel suffered real big from that near some of his later notes. You say that, but it's very much well documented that C.S. Lewis was an atheist and Tolkien made C.S. Lewis Christian. So. Is that true? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so yeah, I, um, it was a. Uh, it's just it's very prevalent in his works, and especially when we get to the origin story of the universe in the Silmarillion, it's going to come out a lot more. Now, um, but um, right now, the wizards we talked about that were just wizards have are now established as like angels mm-hmm. in this universe. Right off the bat, like Gandalf the Grey, Sar on the White, like they all have colors associated with them. And there's only so many of them, and they were sent down here to help the races of good fight the races of evil. More or less. Mm-hmm. It's funny, too, because there's, there's only five of them, and they each had a different color, except for the two of them who aren't relevant to the plot, both of whom got to share blue, apparently. Yeah, well, I'd like to touch on that, because a lot of his writing now, uh, like Aragon, for example, and a lot of people are going to instantly recognize this, uh, comes from a kingdom called Noldor, Noldor or something like that. 
Uh, and it's kind of like this Atlantis. Oh boy. So, okay. You're thinking of Numenor and that's, yeah, that's we're getting right. into some second age stuff because the story, the, the whole story of Numenor is hands down one of the most interesting ones in the whole Lord of the Rings canon. And well, basically to summarize it, it's a city that gets sunk under the waves and the humans that lived on it were vastly superior to regular humans and they lived longer. Oh buddy. It is so much more than that. But it's, like, it's interesting that there's an Atlantis myth in this universe. Yes. Which we've talked about. Uh, yeah, it's it is the reason that elves are like uh, it heaven and got slapped back by God for it. It is, but that's that is Atlantis. Atlantis pisses off the gods, right? Gets sunk. Depending on whose interpretations of, like, are we talking about the Greeks? Are we talking about? Well, I also like how in this one, like, there's once again a mountain that the dwarves want to reclaim, but they're not doing that this time they're passing through it and then we're introduced to a an a relic of an ancient era that's like this demon and only gandalf can fight it yeah mm-hmm. he's realistically the only one who and is well, there's no other way anything else could have could have according the to Belrog, the yeah, isn't the, the Belrog one of the like is of technically of the same creation as gandalf yeah, the like, same tier. Yeah, but yeah, Elrogs have been killed by elves before. Uh, there is one particular elf who I think fought like six of them in a single combat and won. Uh, though he might have died at the end of that single combat, but he did kill them all first. Yeah. Uh, like they are not unkillable in the same way that Gandalf is not unkillable. I'm sure if you ran up to him behind him when he wasn't seeing you coming and smacked him over the head, he's heading back to Valinor for a while. He's he's gonna have a little rest. Um, well, yeah, like he dies, and because Saruman is evil now, Gandalf becomes the new White Wizard, and he's reborn as like the head angel. Yeah, was well, is he's sent back anyways? The entire idea of their physical bodies is something that wizards basically only inhabit on a, a need to do basis. Yeah, because they are very much a, a sort of lower tier of what I'd hesitatingly call like Middle Earth's angels. And there's a lot of, like, emphasis. What do you guys feel about, like, how the men of the West are the last good humans in the world? That's not true. Though. Well, it is because <laughs> Sauron the Easterlings versus the Easterlings, the Easterlings, right? Yeah, yeah but you're, you're bringing one alternative in there. There's, I mean, putting aside the fact that the Rohirrim are different people from, like, you have the Gondorians, you have the Rohirrim, you have... Okay, I'll give you that if you were to map this to, like, if you're trying to physically overlay this map on Europe, which, eh, but you can sort of make it work, then, yeah, it looks off. It looks a whole lot like Europeans are the good guys, and the only non Europeans who are mentioned are allied with the evil yeah. guy. Yeah. And, um, like, this is, this is a little bit of the, the Eurocentric, like, and Westernism and yeah. World War I stuff kind of coming through, right? That we see. So, yeah. mind you, this this aforementioned big evil guy, because that is what Sauron is for the Lord of the Rings, is someone who, A, is also of the same tier as Gandalf and the Balrogs. He's also Maiar. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, you know the whole Atlantis-Numenor thing? So back when that was first raised and they were at their height, they actually, he, Sauron came and he tried to do an evil thing and they fucked them up. They dragged him back in chains. They brought him back as a prisoner. And his entire thing, his whole shtick, and he's he's really bad at the like you know being a big menacing evil guy. Like he tries with the big suit of armor, but 
the core of his being historically and as a through line is seduction. It is uh, bringing you around to thinking that he's your friend. That's why what the ring does is seduce you towards its power. It's why the core of it is in deception and in charisma. Because yeah, we he went that. from being in chains on uh, on Numenor to being the high priest of the gods in like 10 years. And he's the one who convinced them to try and invade heaven. So for reference, the ancestors to all of our supposed good guys were very explicitly in that same position of serving the big, big bad evil guy. Like, Oh yeah, you, we get a bit of that too. Right. Like we get that how even the men of the West aren't immune to Sauron. Like yeah. we're immediately told the big guy that defeated Sauron was corrupted by him. We're immediately yeah. told that the Nazgul were kings of good human yes. civilizations and were corrupted. We're introduced to several human kings of the West that are failing in their position, whether due yeah. to Sauron's influence or without it. Yes. And like it's very clear that Sauron tricked more than just the humans by making the rings. He oh, yeah. tricked everybody. He tricked the dwarves, he tricked the elves, etc. So yeah, they're like you're right. It's a bit more nuanced than West Good, East Bad, but the the main the fact that the main um, conflict is certainly East versus West. Yeah, and that like I can't help but know that's because of how Tolkien's upbringing was and how he positioned himself, and it, it's just not, it's just a product of his time, right? And I uh, he is he's actually fairly progressive for his time period if we can take anything about him from his writing. Yeah, I think. I think he definitely made an attempt to give things more nuance than yeah. a lot of people give it credit for. I don't know he, how successful that is, but it's I rumored think... he said he regretted making orcs all evil all the time. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's cool. I don't know if that's true. I'm um, so again, I'm I'm not certain he ever intended for them to be in the first place as to to be taken that way. I think yeah, um, I don't I don't know either, but I let's let's get into the for me, when a writer takes Ents and makes trees literally come to life, and they tear down a factory producing orcs and, and industry, and the, all the humans and all the good guys are like preserving what's there, and all the orcs and all the goblins and all the bad guys are like, industry, devour, destroy. So, in fairness, and if we're talking about Isengard and the Urukai, the Urukai are half-human. Yeah. Or they're, they're very explicitly... Like the worst of humanity and orcs mixed together. Yeah. And that's why. Sorry, go ahead. They're well, what a lot of people would see orcs now as. Like, what an orc now is represented in media is what the Urukai were. Like, the yeah. actual orcs in Tolkien's novels are more akin to goblins now, mm -hmm. and Urukai are more akin to what orcs are seen as now for the most part. They're very. You know, there's that one scene in the Two Towers where, uh, when Merry and Pippin have been captured, and the orcs are sort of arguing over, do we eat them or which way do we take them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that one's actually much more characterizing of how orcs were supposed to be. Um, in that, like, some of them, they're like, so, so some of them are definitely just cruel for the sake of being cruel. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of them are also. Some of them are just hungry, and the Urukai are very definitely evil with an agenda, right? They're like, yeah. nope, we bring them back. We bring them back to the boss, and the the Misty Mountain goblins who've been, you know, eating anything that moves for the last five thousand years are they're like, yeah, we'll peel the flesh off that because if you live under a mountain for five thousand years, that's what you do. And it's it's interesting because it actually fleshes them out a lot more than 
it's in a way that you also see a little bit in the third movie when uh, there's the orcs who bring Frodo's body back to the tower after the spider gets him, yeah. after Shelob gets him. They like yeah. bicker amongst each other and they they have all this dialogue. Like, especially in the books, there's more of it as Sam's overhearing it and as they overhear dialogue as they're marching along with orcs and in, in the third book is that it's very much there's very much a actual like as opposed to the complete barren wasteland that it's shown as in the movies mordor in the books actually like it is it is a place that orcs live they can breathe the toxic fumes of it which not a lot of other people can but it's very much like there's a couple of them that as they're walking along two of them are talking to each other talking about they want to like try and dip and desert and then go find some good land to farm while no one else is noticing for the next little while because they don't think this is going to go well for them. And it's very, they're, they're characterized as cowardly, certainly, lazy, probably, um, but above all, just afraid of, afraid of and resentful of the authorities that are forcing them to do anything, though in this particular case, do Like, they're not against doing evil stuff on principle, they're doing against doing evil stuff because that involves doing stuff. Yeah. And the, the arc of this universe is very much like a, a, a feel-good story of, like, Bilbo... Uh, rejects what people think hobbits are. I mean, uh, Frodo rejects what people think hobbits are, and is the hero of the end, an unexpected hero. Especially every single hobbit in this novel goes above and beyond what a lot of people are like, hobbits can't do this, and then they do it, right? So it's like, I mean, break your boundaries, go beyond he yourself. loses his own connection to the place he came from in the process, and winds yeah. up uh, like dissociating off into the West. So yeah. feel feel good for a certain definition of feel good. But he still makes the sacrifice to save the world in the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gollum's a story about learning to sympathize with something alien and, and awful to us. And Everything. like, yeah. yeah, Sam's about being a good friend. Like Aragorn's about being the righteous leader that you're born to be. Sam is honestly like, for much as we all love him as a character, especially the way he's portrayed in the movies, He's like ninety-eight percent more problematic than orcs are in how he's described in the books. Like, given the choice between the orcs, who are honestly just portrayed as as like apathetic at worst, Sam, good person, definitely good person, uh, is one hundred percent like a, a indentured servant who's okay with it. He's like, no, I have to call him master and <laughs> like submit myself to him. That's just the natural order of things. And that's not that's if we're talking about product of its time, that's not a great look. Yeah, like the fellowship is a failed idea. We're introduced to the fellowship right away in the first book, and we're instantly told why it falls apart and has to not be a thing anymore in the mm-hmm. second, or like in the end of the first, I think. And then the second's about how like even the best people, like the angels, can fall, and Sauron like becomes evil. And Saruman, Saruman is yeah, like, yeah. yeah, sorry, Saruman and is becomes evil, and Sauron, like, with it, the the two powers, is like seen as unstoppable, and it's like Saruman really just gave into his fears and stuff about the world, and decided to go with the winning side that he thought would win. Yep. And how easy it is, and like they make a comment in the movie, and I don't know if it's in the book, but when they're fighting the Easterlings, they even comment like, "Look, this could be you," because it's just we're just the same. They're just in a different situation than we are with a. Like they were given the same choice, and we can't judge them for that because they chose wrong. Or even just because, frankly, if any of the leaders of the the kingdoms of the West had not been shaken out of their bullshit or deposed, if in Denethor's case, 
like their nations could equally be on the same on the same footing. Yeah. If 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 Denethor didn't get thrown out, he like or if if Wormtongue didn't get thrown out uh, of Edoras, like Rohan could have been on the wrong side here. And yeah. despite how good all of its people are, etc., just takes one leader in the wrong place or who's been listening to the wrong person to correct. Yeah. The shining white city of Gondor is shown as this like big beacon of goodness, and then you get there, and the guy leading it's like about to give up. Gondor's, so. I so I think uh, Minas Tirith is really interesting in the differences in the way it's portrayed in the books versus the movies. It's one of my biggest um, like. Okay, so don't get me wrong. I love how it's portrayed in the movies, and I think it made it work very well for the narrative and the themes they were going. But it's interesting how much they missed of it very much being a city of like philosopher kings in the books mm, in, like in books they're they're yeah but less less even greece and more like there's such a focus in the movie because the movie wants it to be this sort of like everything is on its last legs and um there's a feeling of overwhelming sort of like despair that the the, the last holds of good are being worn away because of that, the aesthetic that Gondor is given and the Minas Tirith in particular is given is very military, which makes sense too, right? It was like it's a city that was designed to be defended, the whole, you know, layered layers walls and the, the whole thing, which tracks. But in the books, it's very much not. It's very much like somewhere that this is the place that Gandalf went to study when he was looking up what the ring was like. Because this is the place they have all the books. This is a place where some of the foremost scholars of the remaining part of the world are. It's more of the outlying cities around it that would have like the military attitudes and the 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 armies that could save the day kind of thing. Whereas Minas Tirith itself is supposed to be like the library city for nerds, like like Faramir. And it's interesting that they decided to make that change in the movies. I find a lot of like elf aesthetic in Minas Tirith in the movie. Like what I like this kind of like pointy helmet like i don't know it's just yeah i guess that yeah, comes I, from I other properties but a lot of like the people of gondor are represented in a very like akin to elf way well, it like, tracks, they all right? have long hair and stuff it tracks in that they're supposed to be the descendants of of numenorean kings who were allied with the elves back in the day right yeah like it's very much uh that that all tracks I mean, it, the the story eventually culminates on a multiple different fronts. Like you get the war at Minas Tirith, you get Frodo and Sam in Mordor, you get like the Ro- the Rohirrim coming to save the day in that journey, and like you get the dead the dead men under the mountain that need to be called into action. That's another change from the books too. Yeah, that's a big one actually. Yes. Where in the movie they're shown as like a weapon of mass destruction that instantly wins, and the book i don't think that's the case at all so what happens in the books and this is actually really interesting that ties into what i was just talking about with ministereth is that um it starts a little earlier when you have uh pippin wandering around ministereth after he's been made a, a member of the guard or whatever and he's basically he's he's assigned to this other guard and they go back to his house and he meets the guy's son he's wandering around with the guy's son for a while and they're watching this parade of people coming in of essentially the outlying like kings of the other cities in Gondor who are all coming to Minas Tirith's defense. And it's this glorious parade, and everyone's cheering. And Pippin's like, wow, that's that's crazy. You know, it'll maybe things will turn out well. And the kid who he's with is like, no, this is 
this is something to be sad about because this isn't enough people. The people we need aren't able to come because they're busy dealing with Corsairs out on the on the coast. We like all of this grandness and glory and the the heroes who are coming in with their personal regiments and everything. This won't be enough. It's 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 not what it should have been. It's not what it was. And so when the whole battle at the Pelennor Fields happens, um, what happens with Aragorn is not that he comes up with the army of the dead in the ships. He gets the army of the dead. He takes them out and kills the Corsairs out on the coast. And that frees up all of the armies who were busy defending that coast against a second army to come and reinforce at, at Minas Tirith. Mm -hmm. So it's not an army of the dead who shows up. It's an army of like the swan prince of i don't remember the city's name and like all his shining knights and this all these other like all these other parts of gondor that have been freed up to come and do it so when when aragorn comes back as the king comma returning he's not doing it with a bunch of ghosts he's doing it with the rest of gondor yeah why do you think Which, they use that for the movie uh, just I, the time probably time yeah Probably time or the fact that the whole army of the dead thing looked really fucking good for the CGI of the time. I'm also well, yeah, it's, it's like the metaphor, the metaphor of it, right? The, yeah. the dead fighting their last war and then the rest. Yeah. I think there's something there as well. Yeah. Also, Peter Jackson really loved establishing characters in and places. And in order to establish all those characters along the coast, he, he, he probably would have needed. A yeah. That's, that's that thing, right? right. It's, right. it's, this way, Gondor can be a single unified force that you're cheering for. That's yeah. basically only ever portrayed in the ruins of Osgiliath and in Minas Tirith. It was yeah. for for the time that a movie has to do things. It's probably more worthwhile because mm -hmm. I've, I've heard people say it before, and I think it's a really good way of putting it. If the books are in their framing device, the story as being told by Frodo um, when he's writing it down in his retirement, the movies are the story as told by humans. It puts the big human wars front and center. It puts men in positions of glory. It's very oriented around that. And they do a very good job of that. I think they both the movie and the books work in their own medium perfectly. I think I get what I want out of both of them. Yes, except for the Hobbit movies, which are bad. <laughs> so, Colin, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a big question here, and you might oh. not even be able to answer it. Okay. As an author... Yeah. Looking at Tolkien's work, what do you take away from it? How do you um, go from okay, it? So, so I mean, the biggest one that that I often talk about with with my writer and just nerd friends is like the creation of the fantasy genre in many ways, right? Yeah. Um, like that's just that's just so huge, and not just not just the creation of a genre, but like because it's it's the in many ways, it's the first of the genre. I mean, like you can kind of argue that there's other things that have helped create fantasy, right? But Tolkien's generally kind of understood to be the the, the start of it. Um, we also, unfortunately, like pinned to that. So it's also, um, I, I think that Tolkien's work is great. So it could have been a lot worse. Like we could have the creation of a genre starting with a really bad book, you know? Um, but like, but sometimes you get stuck with, okay, these are what elves look like. And I, it's really hard to do anything other than that. Right. So you have like novice writers, you know, trying to come up with new races and people being like, oh, they're too elf like or they're too much like dwarves or, oh, that's not going to work because they're not elf like enough. Right. So you get weird things like that happening. You get married to the, the genre creation. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you also have a little bit of this elitism in the fantasy genre that has been formed because 
Tolkien was friggin' like crazy amazing with like I'm gonna make up all these languages and that's gonna birth like <laughs> this this world and series and so on. And so now you have people being like, okay, I guess I have to come up with crazy races and I have to come up with their languages and I have to do all these things when fantasy doesn't need to be like that. And you also have a lot of elitist nerds being like, well, if you don't know the language, then you don't know this book well enough. Right. And so you get like some of that starts slipping in. Um, so those are just some things that I notice on, on the, the writer's side. Also the, the length of it, fantasy books are some of the longest books in any genre. Like if you look at the romance genre, the mystery genre, um, you know, even sci-fi fantasy is by far, like, I don't know another, I don't think that any other genre is longer. Um, and, and if you were to take like the longest books, the top five longest books, I think fantasy would, would top it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, I see a lot of trilogies. Yeah. I see a lot of trilogies. You might be able to get a little bit from, uh, like some of the Neil Stephenson ones, arguably. Yeah. For sci-fi, sci-fi, yeah. That's about as close as you're going to get. And I think, uh, yeah. I think, I think Brandon Sanderson set the record back towards fantasy with Rhythm of War. Didn't they have to invent a yeah. new book binding machine? To get I that don't one know. Print? That guy need well. Um, <laughs> like, like let's. So, like for Tolkien, for me, I see a lot of trilogies in fantasy, and I mm-hmm. can't help but think it's because of Tolkien. I see um, a lot of elves being Tolkien elves. I see a lot of Tolkien dwarves, hobbits less so. Um, I see a lot of people almost taking these three books as the only inspiration point like i don't see a lot of people doing the hobbit where they do a modern folklore with poems and songs and stuff they do like the grand opus fantasy lord of the rings also had poems and songs yeah but they don't take that they don't take that aspect out of it right like that's something i admire about Tolkien. yeah and is that he does that for listeners, like I don't want anyone thinking I'm dumping on the genre. I love the fantasy genre so so much. Like <laughs> it, these are just these are just some things that I notice, um, like on the yeah. on the writing side of things, and some of the things that I'm like, man, like this genre is great. But here are just some of the things that I notice because Tolkien is so big that we're we're stuck in some ways, right? Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about his uh, con- conservationist uh, themes. Sure, because this is the last. These are the last, these four books we just talked about are the last he personally was alive to have published. Mm. And so this is where we draw, we can draw a lot from him as the author before his son gets involved and starts editing and releasing new copies. stuff. In fairness, most of that editing was pretty surface level. So I think it's pretty clear to people that when I say Tolkien at least comes across as if he's in favor of nature, in favor of simplicity. Um, like conservationist and simpl- simplicity of mind themes, I would label it as where he's in favor of like the simple life that the hobbits have. And yeah, it's good to go on an adventure, but a lot of the time, the moral of the story is I was pretty well off with what I had, but I'm glad I did what I did with the adventure. It's and like very... the elves have to leave the world and retire because it's it's their time to go. And there's a lot of like the ends had to save the day or like industry is bad because that's what the orcs and goblins represented so i get where he's coming from with it and with a lot of the symbolism of you know the smokestacks and the the, don't get me wrong like ecological devastation is a massive problem and we're headed towards a climate catastrophe that will undeniably be bad but big but a lot of the sort of pastoralist fantasy that his is his sort of preferred way of things 
there's definitely some elements of classism there, especially in the context of early 20th century. It is very idyllic. It is yeah. very, very idyllic, right? But it's and... very idyllic in direct contrast to the cities in Britain of the time, where I don't want to say like all those poor people being grouped together and working in factories are dirty and bad, but there's a little bit of... um, mm -hmm. Like, given how I how deliberately idyllic the the Shire is, right? How, like, it's painted as desirable. There's a lot of classism going on in the Shire, right? The idea of... It, it, there's a little bit of sort of inherently uh, conservative thought to the way that he goes about opposing industry, because he goes about opposing it as a method of progress. And... I don't think he did this intentionally. I think it's something that often comes across from people who are like, if only we could go back to the better, more simple time where we all lived in the countryside. Right. And like, there's a bit of inherent classism and regressiveness to that. Like, don't get me wrong. Pollution and industry definitely have their problems. But uh, that does need to be addressed at some point with, with Token. I, I, can, I actually agree with you, but uh, I'll just say my piece and then I want Colin to finish his thought because I think yeah, he got absolutely. a lot but like i actually agree with you i don't think like if i if i were to say to someone tolkien came at this from an ecological pr preservation perspective i i don't think i could agree with myself like i don't think he came at this like oh we need to preserve the trees because they help the planet he came at this from oh we need to preserve the trees and stuff because i like that idyllic setting i don't like the big cram yeah, city yeah because it's it's spiritually important to me yeah and yeah. so uh, what was your kind of thought there, Colin? Well, exactly that. That don't forget, Tolkien is a devout Catholic, right? And yeah. um, I think some of this is coming from that Catholicism as well, right? Um, we've talked about on our previous uh, episode um, the idea of leaving um, Eden and becoming corrupted, right? Leaving the perfect yeah. world, and the perfect world is something that we can never get back to, and it's behind us. And um, he's tying that a little bit into the industry and what's destroying the world during World War One. Um, that he fights in. So I, th I think that just a lot of that is spilling out. And also Catholics have a little bit more of a, like a little bit more of a, a metaphorical take than say a lot of Protestants who take a little bit more literal take on things like the Bible. So with storytelling, that's why you have these arguments between, you know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, right? Where C.S. Lewis is like, this has to be very clear that, you know, that Aslan is Jesus versus Tolkien who's saying, you know, I'm, I don't have to be, I don't want it to be so obvious that I'm shoving it down your throat. He wants that metaphor to be there. He wants storytelling to sort of facilitate some of that imagination happening. So I think yeah. that has a little bit to do with it as well. Yeah. We get the eagles as a big, important aspect. Yeah. The, the animals in the forest being a, in the battle of five armies. They're like an important factor. We get like the ants being like a literally deciding factor in the war against Saruman. Like, yeah. It's very clear to me that he's trying to say like these nature things are important, but I don't believe for a second he's doing it because he's like I like preserving nature um because it's a good thing to do. He's doing it because I think he thought it was it. I think he thought it was a good thing to do, but his why is different. Yeah, exactly. It's not it's not what our common understanding of ecological preservation is nowadays. Yeah. If um if anyone is familiar anyone here or anyone out there is familiar with the book Dune Right. Dune is an example where it's very clear that, OK, this is an ecological story and there's a lot of ecological concern happening here. 
Um, and and just just the comparison of the two, because Dune is also a series where has been taken over by you know the family estate and and has this strange kind of okay the author's no longer here but the books are still with us so how do we continue this story so it's it's similar um in in the legacy but you can see how those legacies just divert a little bit how they're similar but they they diverge and clearly the authors were doing something different yeah eventually the ring is destroyed uh Sauron's armies are defeated uh as soon as the ring is destroyed yay and the age of men begins because the elves had to leave the world and that's another theme is like the elves have to leave so it's up to humans to take over from there. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like a passed down, you're the next chosen one type of lineage. Fuck you, Dorbs. Yeah, that, it, it, I don't know what he's trying to get across by making the elves so perfect and so like, we're going to leave the world and we trust humans to do it. And well, it, like, I, it, there's even a mention of Age of Orcs at one point uh, in the movie specifically. Uh, like, I don't know like what he's trying to imply. I can. Um, I do not remember that in the movies. My yeah. my stab at it is that it um, a lot of the races are similar to certain nationalities. Yeah. Um, so the dwarves tend to be similar to like Scottish, right? Um, whereas the elves are very like English, and so you have this like English superiority over like Scottish. And, yeah. So you have that, yeah. and then Age of Men being, I, I think, is very similar to the Americans, right? The Americans are inheriting the British Empire. Right. Um, I'm not so sure the that empire that is no more. I'm not I know, sure. I can that. see that. I don't know if that's I, I think that's a I think that's an interpretation you could put on it, but I don't yeah. think that's uh I don't think that was the intended run out. If nothing else, just because at least in the books, again, the dwarves are definitely not Scottish. Um, right. No, no, but but there's there's this idea of like this this it, they become kind of this side race where they're good guys, but we don't really like them. Like that's kind of the attitude um yeah. is sort of contributed. And whereas the the hobbits are also like who are these people? They're kind of like uh, as well similar Scottish, like Irish sort of the Irish the countryside. More Irish. Yeah. yeah. So there, yeah, there's I, this again, yeah. I, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that oh Tolkien sat there and was like I'm gonna make these races this way. Like no, but I'm saying that if you do a little bit of not psychoanalysis, but you do a little bit of like hmm, where's this guy coming from? What's his background? Then you can sort of be like hmm, like this industry seems to really point at Germans, right, and and Hungarians and this sort of Central European power, and hmm, okay. They're, those are also the bad guys. Who did he fight against? Those guys. Oh, hmm, that kind of makes sense. You know, just a little bit of that. Yeah. No, I get that. I I, I, think, I agree with Ridge. I don't think that's his intention, though. But I think like he was he was very resistant to that interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in in a lot of his yeah, writings about it. But I, I get that you can kind of draw parts of that, and that might just be because of, like I said, his background. Like that's why I said just for everyone's information, and I clarify at the beginning where Tolkien comes from. And what era era he was born mm-hmm, in, because mm-hmm. that clarifies a lot for how his writing is going to be presented. Yeah. yeah. Um. Another theme, uh, companionship and friendship. Uh, yeah. Probably That's the most the, impactful on people, honestly. It's the real fantasy for a writer who went to war with three of his close friends and was the only one to come back. Is yeah. Uh, a young hero and three of his close friends go to war and they all come back alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably the most heart tugging aspect like and when i watch the movies and sam and frodo go through their their time it's like holy crap i need to value my friends more like yeah yeah. (laughs) like uh, he i think this is work if anything does an amazing job like and when i say if anything it's kind of weird to say about tolkien's work but like (laughs) you know like he just does such a good job of making you like 
friends are important. Companionship is how we make it through. Working together is how we defeat this evil. Yeah, the evil is always presented as so divisive and so like disjointed and can't work together. Because even Saruman and Sauron, despite Ally, don't like Saruman's like plotting to overthrow Sauron. It's like, well, they're they're self defeating, right? There's yeah. The whole the, it's the entire evil side of it is a series of people who are trying to grab at power because they, in effect, are a combination of lazy, greedy, and don't like the person who's currently in power over them. Yeah. That's that's the heart of evil in Tokens' work. Um, so and this, it's pretty consistent yeah. the whole the whole way down. Arguably. Sauron is as bad at what he does because he never really wanted to be where he is. He was he was very much he spent the better part of the Silmarillion being like the the evil second in command. That was his whole gig. Well, him, him actually that, being in charge now is a little bit of a rude surprise from his point of view. So there are two other works attributed to Tolkien, but they were not released published by Tolkien. They're published by his son, who did edits and then sent them to the publisher. And they are the Silmarillion. And there, and I think the other one were unfinished tales or something. Yeah, unfinished yeah, tales. tales. The book of law, the the book of lost tales. Those unfinished tales. There was the fall of Gondolin. There was. But the only two, like if you go and look, uh, the only two that are directly attributed to him and not his son are the Cimmerian and unfinished tales. Mm, I have a copy of the fall of Gondolin on my bedside table that begs to differ. Mm, interesting. Uh... Just when I did my research, I found all the others were like, "This is more of his son than him." I don't know. It's just something I noticed. And so his son definitely did a bunch of work on them because a lot of them were literally written in the margins of papers he wrote on different topics. And his son definitely did a lot of compiling to put them into a readable manuscript form. But he didn't oh, do a lot of his own writing. Like the very fall of Gondolin is part of the Silmarillion. Yeah. Uh, so. Broadly speaking, yes, the story of the fall of Gondolin is in the Silmarillion. It is also a published book, the length of the Silmarillion, which is distinct from the story, the part, portion of the story in the Silmarillion. Oh, and the Baron and Luthien. Baron and Luthien, that's the other yeah, one. And the children of Urin. Yeah, yeah, okay. The yeah, Silmarillion, yeah. and by extension, Unfinished Tales, because it are kind of the origin story and more world building than we could ask for about this universe. Oh, yes. Like the Cimmerillion has the god Iluvatar creating the world, uh, angels and devils and demons. Um, there's a there's literally the devil himself, Malkor, aka Morgoth, who rebels against the Luvatar. A big war occurred. This is gonna be really simplified. Um I mean, and before it happens, it literally starts with uh Eru Luvatar and all of the, the Valar who are sort of like the higher level angels or gods, depending on your point of view singing the song of reality in three parts, including Melkor having his rebellion and eventually like, the, the whole overwhelming and, dis- and movement of it that's, that sets everything that will happen afterwards before reality even starts. Yeah, it's wild. And so all of this world, very Christian, by the way, uh, this kind of very clear one-to-one uh, Christian inspiration, um, something not a lot of people know is the world's name. They know it's they know Middle Earth, but that's just a place in the world. Um, the world we're talking about is Arda. What a what a disappointing name! Yeah, you think? I want more. I want more like weird umlecks and and apostrophes on that. <laughs> I think it works. I think... I, I just I really like that 
it's almost like when we refer to it, we call it Lord of the Rings world or Tolkien's world, but like it's Arda. Like that's what maybe, we should be Maybe if you're about. some kind of, of low power level pleb. Pleb, yeah. yeah not a big Lord pleb. of the Rings <laughs> This is where the big nerds are going to come out and laid waste to us in the comments. Those people sitting here like, oh, the Silmarillion is the backstory of the Lord of the... No. No, 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 no. My friend, the Silmarillion is about a man named Fionor and how angry he got. Um, it, it happens to also inform the entire backstory of the Lord of the Rings, but that's not what it's about. So what I get out of the Silmarillion is basically how each race, other than elves and humans, which are created by God himself, Iluvatar, Every other race is created by a different uh, angel. That... No. Uh, the only the only race that was explicitly created by a particular angel was dwarves. Um, I thought the orcs and trolls and nope. Nope. all that um, stuff so, created by... Okay, so for a certain value of created, yes. At the very beginning... Oh, all right. Okay, well... so, so we have Fanor, whose defining trait is being always angry all the time. He's also a good smith. He takes these... He makes three gems called Silmarils, which contain in them the light of these ancient trees, which are all like the one radiant light in the world before the sun and shit. And everyone's like, my God, those are the best gems that have ever been made. And Morgoth, being a little bitch, steals them and runs back to the main part of Middle-earth. So Fionar's like, I will reclaim my gems, and anyone else other than me, whoever gets their hands on the gems, I curse them to really bad times. And then a lot of other people try to get their hands on the gems, including Fanor, and a lot of them have really bad times. And if you want an epic scale tragedy, like if you wanted to read the first several parts of the Old Testament, except they are all explicitly tragedy in like a Hamlet-esque way, <laughs> that's the Silmarillion, my man. So basically, to even shorten it up further, eventually... Morgoth fights some people. He loses. Yeah, he, eventually gets uh, all his Algors get men's get beat. Sauron's like one of his other demons, and he's like the only Sauron one. Left. Is, and... Sauron is Sauron is the Lord of Werewolf Bat Party Island. <laughs> I want to make this clear: he is the Lord of Werewolf Party Island, and that's why he's so mean later. Is he's peeved about having Werewolf Party Island taken away from yeah. him? And he eventually joins the Atlanteans. Tells them fight heaven. They do. They lose. And uh, yeah, that brings right around to this. We end up with Sauron in the beginning of the Second Age, where Sauron basically collects his power in Mordor because he fled there, tries to take over the world, and humans and elves beat him. If it didn't work for my boss, it'll probably work for me. Mm -hmm. And that's where we pick up with the Third Age, which is the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which is what he started with. So because... All of that's a long, lengthy process and a lot to go through. I would recommend anybody who really wants more lore of the fantasy world that is Arda and Tolkien's work to to go with the Cimmerillion. Um, I don't know if I'd recommend it first. <laughs> I'd recommend starting with the the Hobbit, obviously, because I I like how reading them in the order they were written because it makes more sense in my opinion, but. I mean, if you want to start with the creation story, you start with... It's like if someone, like... It's like reading Malzahn Book of the Fallen in reverse in terms of general readability. Mm -hmm. what, what are your opinions on the Sumerian and Lost Tales, Colin? Uh, so I haven't actually read them, and I know that's... Me neither. Uh, but... Yeah, I, so when it comes to... Yeah, I, I am a big fan of 
the fantasy genre, but I haven't like done a deep dive on Tolkien um, that I that I would like to. Um, but my my thoughts, I'm always really fascinated by by prequels. I think prequels are always really really fascinating. Um, sometimes I can be annoyed by them depending how they're done. Um, but I'm really interested in the prequels of Lord of the Rings because the way in which he presents the lore and the mythology is just like utterly fascinating and is done in this way where it's like truly magical, where everything is like very high. Like it's such high fantasy, right? That you're not He's even sure. the father of high fantasy. Bob. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, because you have these, like these gods or these like angels, not angels. Right. And you have these yep. like thing like races being created, like utterly created by beings and things and things like that, that like just, you don't normally read in a lot of other, like a lot of contemporary fiction doesn't quite go there. Um, so that's something that I really love that, that here are these races that, okay, we can understand elves and dwarves and it's like, yeah, but do you want to know how they were like made? And it's like, oh, okay, this was just a story. Now it's like, now we're getting into the mythology. So I see those things, like I see the the prequels as almost like a, a Greek mythology to the, the Lord of the Ring tradition in a way, in a way. Yeah. He has think- his Greek mythology, his folklore and his like fantasy book. Series. I think it's it's interesting too because it's not just like the how how things were made isn't honestly as relevant as what has happened since. It's not mm-hmm. the like yeah how elves and dwarves made were made doesn't really matter. It's the like thousands of years in history that inform what they are now. Yeah, how do you mm-hmm. feel about a book entirely kind of centered on the premise of world building and telling people about it's the world? Not it's about Fianor. <laughs> Yeah, but it has a lot of world building in it. Silmaril is right there in the title. I think it can be done, and I think it's super cool. Yeah, but but it's also one of those questions of, like, as the annoying writer in the room, it's the whole like, okay, do you have characters? Do you have setting? Do you have a plot? Do you have a beginning, middle, end? Do you have objectives? Do you have a call to action? You know, like like all those things, and it's like it kind of gets hard to do some of those things with that. But if anyone's going to do it, you know, like it's someone who's going to be creating the tradition in the first place. So. Yeah, I think you have to have a world people want to explore first mm-hmm. before you dump lore on them. <laughs> what I'm saying is I think Tolkien can get away with it if anyone can. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's also which brings like... us to the final topic, actually, which is the impact of Tolkien and his world and the impact of Lord of the Rings and everything we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, to most people probably listening to it is pretty obvious, like the impact he's had. Uh, the movies speak for themselves. They were made, and they themselves had an impact on movie making. Just impressive what Peter Jackson yeah. did with Tolkien's work. And yeah. but like, I can't go and read any fantasy work without recognizing something of Tolkien's nowadays. I, so I actually think that yes, it absolutely had a dominating influence on the industry for quite a long time. But to me, the most interesting thing is really the more recent. Uh, almost rebellion against that like the fantasy Mm -hmm. authors who are Mm -hmm. going out of their way to subvert the classic lord of the rings tropes Mm -hmm. if you're reading you know the stormlight archive it goes out of its way to be alien and different in a way that sets it apart from what you would expect from something that is quote-unquote fantasy which to me speaks volumes because tolkien has had such an impact that now people have to go out of their way to avoid his shadow yeah, if you want to have that kind of backlash, you need to have had a dominance in the first place. But seriously, like, I, it's hard for me to even imagine a different kind of elf or a different kind of dwarf. And then when it's not Tolkien's dwarves or not Tolkien's, like, 
what he established. It's like, okay, this person's trying to do something different. And that goes into my mind immediately that like, that's the standard. He set the standard for everything in terms of fantasy. Yeah. So I also, you got, you got it actually. No, no. Yeah. I've been talking a lot. Go ahead. I I was going to say it also created like, honestly, I think it created a generation of new nerds. um, And I mean that in like a loving way that, um, you know, Lord of the Rings uh, contributes so much to, like Dungeons and Dragons um, contributes so much to other new writers who are trying to find a genre and they end up in fantasy because of Lord of the Rings. Um, Peter Jackson brings uh, Lord of the Rings and fantasy onto the the, um, the screen, which is I'm pretty sure is the first live fantasy um, to be done, and then proves for later showrunners like Game of Thrones that y- yes, actually movies. this can be done. Sorry, it's not the first in terms of movies, but it it did reinvigorate the fantasy movie genre. Like previous previous to that, I don't think like you you couldn't come with a script and be like, yeah, we're gonna do a fantasy. They they would be like, this isn't gonna sell. Like even Game of Thrones was a tough sell. Um, for a while. Conan the Barbarian was before that, right? Like, there yes. there are fantasies before that. Yes. But I, I think it just contributes to the overall success of, like, that being a viable thing as mm. opposed to it not being a viable thing. And so... Lord of the Rings got truncated. So it just, it just expands like, a genre. Like, it, it creates a genre, but then it also has expanded the genre. Um, by things being able to draw so much off of it and evolve. And as you're saying, as like trying to rebel against it, which is completely like like totally great, totally viable. Um, you know, you have things like um Grimdark, right? The Grimdark genre rising and saying, hey, actually, you know, not heroic. We're gonna do the opposite. Yeah. We're gonna do lots of anti-heroes or like straight up villainous kind of stuff. And you know, now and now there's like a backlash against Grimdark, right? Like it, it, it's a pendulum swing, which is great. And it's just so great to see. So I love it. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to touch on how both the book and the movie had such like for the book, a lot of people know it as revitalizing the fantasy genre in terms of novels. I don't know. I'm not a like economics expert, but a lot of people say that it wasn't doing too well. And then the, these books came out and then it was doing well. Um, or the movies like you had like those cheap kind of goofy fantasy movies. And then this came out and now every movie has to have a giant battle and fantasy movies have to be taken in at least somewhat more seriously. Film mm-hmm. I'll absolutely give you, but I think fantasy was considered a pretty ghettoized genre up until much more recently than Lord of the Rings. Mm. Like it was considered a pulpy, like genre yeah. in a derogative sense. Way Similar to sci-fi. Yeah. Well, I mean, by by twits, in fairness, right? Like anyone who says genre in a derogatory sense can go eat. So a you're bag. saying the movies didn't make it less pulpy? Like I don't. The the movies did. I think the movies did a huge amount for normalizing uh, fantasy in yeah in on the screen. Yeah, but I don't think the books did. The books no, no the no, books no. definitely got a lot of people towards them. They did not. Um, too uh, much. The only thing I read is like, it like there's a note that says like. If not for these books, the fantasy, who knows where the fantasy genre would be like, because it revitalized it to a point of like fever. Like people were going out and buying fantasy books that weren't Tolkien. Yeah. They wanted more fantasy. Well, I've worked in a bookstore and, and like a, a big commercial bookstore. And uh, it's so cool. I, I used to hate I used to hate books being adapted into movies because I was a hipster. Right. But then I realized after working in a bookstore, it is so amazing to see people who have like never touched a book see a movie and then come into the store and they're like, I want to read now. 
And yeah. I'm like, okay, I can't deny this is super cool. Like that's awesome, yeah. right? It's super cool. And I'm going to steer you away from the novelizations of Star Wars because they're not a good way to approach that. These uh, exceptions, but it's super cool for the most part. Yeah. So you have you have great, yeah, you're absolutely right about the revitalization. It's awesome. I, I think I think just by us talking here, I mean, there the impact of Tolkien's work and Arda and everything revolving Lord of the Rings is like dropping an elephant into a kiddie pool. And like it's just the splash it's made, it's comic book level logic here when I'm talking about that situation. And it's like I like we're still riding the splash, right? Like we're probably near the end of it, I don't know, but we're still riding the the wave of that kind of impact he's made. We're still at the point where the first fantasy world we've talked about in our series is Lord of the Yeah. Yeah. And I that, that's why I chose it. it and I thought it, you know, if I'm going to start off with a mini series about fantasy worlds, well, I'm going to start with the one that most people know and probably made the biggest splash. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. There might be a debate there. I don't know what that other one you would talk about would be, but it this is a really good one to start with, I think. I think that's fair to say. Word. All right. Join us next time for another mini series special episode. Great right. Empires. Thank everyone else to. Wait, are we doing a different miniseries? Okay, I misread that. I was going to say, join <laughs> us for our next Fantasy Worlds. Do I force these two to read a bunch of books they haven't read? Our next different <laughs> I, miniseries I is called Great Empires, and the first Great Empire we're going to be talking about is another foundational one for the miniseries that we're going to establish what that miniseries looks like, and it's going to be Great Empires Realm. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter for updates. I'm your host, Andrew Ryan, and have a good day.